I'm going to be talking about joy this morning. Please, keep it, keep it down, keep it down. Well, it's really great to uh, be here uh, and uh, great to uh, join with you uh, in your homes through, uh, uh, through this, uh, this wonderful opportunity. And uh, we've had a great time here this morning. There's a real buzz in the room. There's a real sense of God's presence here, which is, which is uh, so exciting. And uh, I know we're missing this uh, a little bit when we're at home but uh, hopefully the lockdown won't be going on for too much longer. But what we're looking at this morning is a passage from Philippians that might help us a bit through the lockdown to keep our eyes on the joy that Jesus has for us. So I'm going to be sharing from Philippians chapter 2, and uh, some of this is a really well-known passage that uh, uh, will be very familiar to you, but it's great just to revisit it today and, uh, and hear what God's going to say to us. So it's Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 18. So if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, these words from 2,000 years ago still resonate strongly with us today. We see Paul encouraging us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to think about what he did for us and to uh, obtain joy from that, to derive pleasure and joy and confidence from what Jesus has done, even in difficult circumstances. So, Father, as we unpack this word this morning, please help us to do the same, that we might derive joy from the word of God. Amen. Well, now, Paul is writing to the Philippians, and you remember that he'd been there uh, on his missionary journeys. 
and um, he'd been thrown into prison. And uh, so he had a bit of a, a rough ride at Philippi, but he'd found some uh, dear friends there, people who uh, heard the word of God and put their trust in him. But then we read that he goes on to a place called Berea, which is the sort of next town down the road. And uh, in Acts, Luke tells us that the Bereans were of more noble character than the people that Paul had just been with. And they took care to study the word of God a bit more carefully. And there's a sort of hint there that the folks at Philippi were uh, a slightly restive crowd and uh, uh, that they uh, were people of hot passions and pride. And uh, it's in the sort of northern part of, part of Greece, Philippi, uh, and it's a, it's a place of hot passions and uh, a place where uh, sometimes people can carry a, uh, a feud on for generations. And uh, so people have, have strong feelings. And it's the same here. It's the same across the world. It's human nature. People have strong feelings. People think they're right. This week I've been involved with uh, a spat between a couple of vicars uh, in another part of the country uh, because uh, they disagreed with each other about how, a, how one of them had handled a thing. And they both felt they were right. They both felt strong feelings. Uh, and yet uh, the way that they, one of them particularly, spoke about the other uh, on social media, really unhelpful and... Uh, unkind. So that there was no sense there of putting Jesus first. But we'll see in this passage that uh, Paul encourages us to uh, exercise some humility and he sets Jesus before us uh, as a model of this. Now he's in chains in prison uh, and yet everybody in the palace has heard the gospel and uh, he can see that um, uh, the Philippians need to see God's purposes being worked out in his difficult circumstances, in the difficult circumstances that Jesus endured. And he understands their capacity for pride. And uh, he knows that it makes it hard for them to endure setbacks uh, as, uh, uh, as being something that they can c carry through. Uh, they, uh, they, they've dealt with difficult things, uh, external pressures, pressures from others in the church. We'll see later in the book. And he talks about uh, selfish ambition and vain conceit. And he's suggesting to us that some of the Philippians have been jostling a bit amongst themselves uh, to position themselves for advantage or maybe for protection. So he reminds them, particularly in verses uh, 5 to 11, uh, about Jesus. Uh, commentators think this passage, the bit which uh, appears in slightly different uh, typeface, is uh, part of an old hymn, a, a song of praise to Jesus. And uh, Paul uses this to remind the Philippians. Maybe it's a song that they will have sung uh, 2,000 years ago there in Philippi. And the theme here is that Jesus does not assert his authority or his position as the Son of God. Instead, he uh, agrees to become a baby, and he grows up. He has a short three-year period of ministry, and then he dies a horrible, uh, gruesome death on the cross for us. So why did he do that? He's exchanged the glory of heaven for uh, this, uh, this tough assignment to come here uh, to uh, grow up, to become a man and die on the cross painfully. Why did he do that? Why did he make that exchange of all the glory of heaven for that pain? Well, we're familiar with the idea of, of making an exchange uh, we have money, we go shopping in the, in <laughs> when we're allowed to, and we exchange uh, some money for some goods in the shop. Uh, or we might do this uh, on eBay. And when we go, we make a sort of unconscious calculation. 
I've got five pounds. Uh, is this particular article worth five pounds of my money? Do I want this more than I want the five pounds in my pocket? And so we make that unconscious uh, exchange. We make that decision to exchange the, uh, the five pounds uh, for the goods. And uh, we might do that in a shop. We might do it on eBay. We might uh, uh, bid five pounds. Somebody else might think it's worth a bit more and pay a bit more, and we, we lose out. But uh, Jesus has the same kind of uh, decision to make. He had all the glory of heaven, which he shared with his father. John 17.5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So it's clear that Jesus shared the glory of God before he came here. So why did he give all that up? Why did he humble himself? He could have said, no, I'm not going. I rather like it here with all these people praising me and uh, uh, all this worship going on, people bowing down, throwing crowns before me. Why did he give that up and come here? Well, the answer, amazingly, is us, you and me, and all those who would put their trust in Jesus as their saviour. He came to win us with a demonstration of his power and love. And he didn't do this with any sense of reluctance that this was a, a bad bargain for him. On the contrary, he did it because he uh, was glad to submit to his Father, whose plan it was to save us because he loves us. That famous verse John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son to come and save us. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus gave up all that he had out of obedience to his Father to come and win something which they both regard as worth giving up everything to gain. God gives up his Son. Jesus gives up his, his glory in heaven to come and win you and me. That had been God's plan right from the start, before the world was created. What if Jesus had said, well, no, I've, I've thought about it. I don't love them enough. That's not what happened. He came. He did love us enough, and he continues to love us enough. He was obedient. And he humbles himself even to the point of death, even to the point where uh, we hear him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? That whole relationship with his father is lost in that moment. Jesus knew this would happen because he would be bearing our sin on the cross. He'd be paying the price there for our wrongdoing. And he still went for it. He still went for it because he valued the thought that we would be won as a result of this, that he would win us for himself and his Father. So he puts others first. He puts his Father first in obedience to him, and he puts us first because he knows that by coming and dying on the cross, he will win us for himself. So he's... he's He's obedient and he's humbled himself to his heavenly Father. Now, obedience involves a measure of trust. If we bid on eBay or we buy something online, we've usually got to pay first, haven't we? And uh, we, we uh, press pay and the money goes off and we sit there for a day or two thinking, well, I wonder what's going to happen. Is it going to come? And uh, usually uh, the seller sends what we've ordered and uh, everybody's happy. And then we're encouraged to give each other some, uh, uh, some, some reviews. And uh, we say, you know, top seller, five stars. And then uh, top payer, you know, thank you for paying so quickly, another five stars. It's a bit of a love-in, isn't it? And uh, uh, everybody's happy because they've got what they want. 
In Jesus' case, the stakes are rather higher. He's giving up all the glory of heaven to come here and die on the cross. And he knows that his father has told him that he'll die, but on the third day he'll rise again. So in Mark 8:31 it says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and then on the third day, rise again. So Jesus knew this. His father had told him this, and he came with that, uh, that knowledge. But he must have been prone to doubt about this. We're told in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like us. And so right back in Genesis, we see the serpent tempting Eve with those fateful words. Did God really say that? You can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, that's not quite what God said, of course. But that's the way the serpent, the, the tempter, comes to us. The devil comes and says, did God really say that? And Jesus will have been tempted in just this same way. And he will have had to endure this temptation for 34 years. Uh, he knew the promises of God over his life, his heavenly Father. So he didn't have just to wait a few days for his parcel to arrive from Amazon or from eBay. He had to wait in confidence in what his father had said for 34 years or so. So uh, it's a long time. It's a big bet for him. He's putting his whole life on the line, trusting that his father will raise him up again on the third day if he goes through a painful death. So he will have thought, well, will he do it? Can he do it? And of course, uh, just like Bob the Builder, for those of you who are small out there, he can. Jesus asks, can he do it? Yes, he can. Did he do it? Yes, he did. Has he spoken to me? Yes, he has. Will he do it for me? Yes, he will. Jesus trusted God. And he was following an ancient pattern in this. We see right back in Genesis 15 that Abraham believes the promises of God. God comes to him and speaks to him and says, you'll have many children. Abraham's in his 80s and uh, no kids. His, his wife not able to have children. And it doesn't look like he's going to have any uh, heirs, no, no children to come after him. But God comes and says to him, your offspring will be like the sand on the, on the seashore, be like the stars in the sky. You'll have loads of descendants. And Abraham believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness, uh, the, the, the Scripture says. And Jesus believed his heavenly Father, and so it will be credited to him as righteousness. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. So it's a mark of righteousness when we put our trust in God, when he's given us a promise. I'd just like to encourage you to think of some promises that God has made for us. And we could spend a long time doing this, but I just jotted a few down. 1 Corinthians 1.8, it says that we'll be presented blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. That's such a brilliant promise because for all our doubts, for all our concerns, have I blown it? You know, we can think, oh, I haven't got that right. I've done that wrong. What about that thing that happened ages ago? Uh, maybe the person's died that I did some wrong to. God says, I'm going to present you blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. What an amazing promise. There's a promise in John 17, 26, that the love of God that he has for Jesus will be in us, that same love. There's a promise in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that we're being made more like Jesus as our lives go on. There's a promise in Romans 
8.28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Now, those promises only help us if we put our trust in them. We say, yeah, actually, do you know what? I'm going to place my confidence in that promise today. That's what Paul was doing back there uh, in prison uh, when he was writing to the Philippians. That's what Jesus had done when he came from heaven to earth in order to pay the price for our sin. He was putting his trust in the promises of his heavenly Father. And Paul sees that there's more to life than just being in prison and enduring uh, some temporary difficulties. He says uh, a little bit later on in Philippians 3, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything's loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. He's lost everything. He's a bit like Jesus in this sense. He's lost all the glory of heaven. Paul hadn't known that glory yet, but uh, Jesus was like, he'd lost everything. Paul uh, shares this, he says, I've lost all things. He's in prison, he's got nothing. I consider all that I've lost garbage so that I may be uh, able to gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, trusting in God's promises. I want to know Christ, he says. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, so it's not a a rose-strewn, comfy path sometimes, it's hard, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's got his eyes on the prize. That's what Jesus had. He had his eyes on the prize, which is you and me, which is us, that he would win us for heaven. So there's humility here, there's trust, but there's also joy. When we do our online shopping, we, uh, we wait a few days, and then the postman rings the doorbell and runs off, and we open the door, and he's left a parcel for us. And it's the, it's the handbag we've ordered, or the shoes, or the coat, or whatever it might be. Uh, I had this experience yesterday, only it turned out to be a parcel with some bathroom cleaner in it, so not so exciting. But the prize that Jesus wanted when he gave up all the glory of heaven to come here as a human child, knowing that he would die on the cross, was us and the countless millions of others who would put their trust in him, who would be saved by his death on the cross, where he paid the penalty for our sin. And winning that prize would be a source of immense and everlasting joy for Jesus. And so he had his eyes on that wonderful prize. Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. There's all these great men and women of faith in, in the chapter before. The writer says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. There's a picture of what this joy looks like a little bit in Philippians chapter 2, the passage we've been looking at, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
That's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And as Ben reminded us earlier, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places by faith. We enjoy this wonderfully privileged position of knowing something of what it is to be in Christ right now. And so we're not waiting altogether for the joy that comes. We know something of the joy of being in Christ already. There's more to come, of course, but we know something of it today, that settled, abiding joy, that confident joy that comes from being in Jesus. So we can see that Jesus is seated there in wonderful authority, and there are some wonderful pictures in uh, the Scripture, in Revelation in particular, of Jesus risen in glory, receiving worship. Wonderful. His joy is founded on the love that he shares with his heavenly Father. But it's also founded in the love that he has for us. So we see that in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. It's how great, how wide, how high, how deep is the love of God. And in Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God. We're wonderfully loved by God and able to love him back in return. And that's a source of such beautiful, wonderful joy. It's beautiful. Now, the Bible refers to our joy being made complete. We know something of it now, but there's more to come. Philippians 2 is a little example of this. Uh, and uh, 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 so Paul says, I want, I want my joy, I want your joy to be complete. There's another in uh, 2 John, chapter 1, where John writes, I've much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come and visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Isn't that our hope today? We're, we're separated by uh, the, the lockdown, but there's a little taste of that joy here in the room here, uh, where there's, I don't know, half a dozen of us. And it's such a pleasure in being together, such a joy. And John uh, remarks on this. He says, I'm coming to see I want to come and see you so that our joy may be complete. There's something of that joy we've been missing during this lockdown. We're looking forward to uh, resuming the joy of being able to meet together. But in the same way, we look forward to the joy of meeting Jesus in heaven, putting the same trust in his promises that he did when he put his trust in his Father and came here to die on the cross for us, gave up everything for us. Isn't it appropriate that our response to him would be to say, Lord, I give up everything for you. It's all yours. Do with me, do with my life what you will just uh, reading a, a, a tiny extract from a book by Gladys Aylward, or about the life of Gladys Aylward, the, the Chinese missionary who went off to China. And she said, here I am, Lord, here's my life, here's my money. I put them at your disposal. And that's, the, that's what God's looking for from us. But in doing that, we will find wonderful joy. It's not that we're giving up all that we have uh, in order to get a bad bargain. We get wonderful joy out of this as we commit ourselves to serving Jesus. It's a deep and abiding joy with more to come in the future. John 15, 11, he's writing about the, uh, the vine. And uh, uh, he's, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I've told you this, he says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus wants us to share in the joy that he has with his Father. And if we set aside our ambition and our personal priorities and put our trust in Jesus in obedience to him, we'll find that we enjoy the right. Let's just pray for a moment.
Father, thank you so much. Jesus gave up everything for us. And Lord, we are uh, half-hearted sometimes or we, we don't fully understand how to respond. But I pray that you'll help us with this, to be willing to give things up for the sake of Jesus, willing to give things up for the sake of advancing the kingdom of God, that our prayer might be, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, not mine. And Father, as we do this, I pray that you will develop in us an abiding sense of joy, a wonderful sense of pleasure in serving you and in the expectation of all that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.